0: Three years ago, my uncle took me on a trip to the Holy Land. And I've shared some of the stories, some of my experiences with you previously here at WPC. Each day of the trip, we visited something new that reshaped the the pictures I had painted in my head previously about how biblical events and stories may have looked. One of the most memorable days was the, the Friday before we left. A friend of mine mentioned that Franciscan monks meet every week at a church right next to the Ecce Homo Arch. This is the archway that was first built in the second century as an entryway into the Roman public square. Many believe it's the place where Pontius Pilate brought Jesus and he presented him to the crowd saying, this is the man, or here is this man, or behold this man. So the monks, they walked the Via De La Rosa the same route They've been walking for generations, stopping at the 14 stations of the cross to worship and to pray. I got there early because I knew it was the only chance I'd really get to walk with them. And it was quite the experience. Crowds, they they moved out of the way as the monks led this procession down the narrow streets. The last four stations are all in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Now, on most days, thousands of people make the pilgrimage to see this place, to go and to be where Jesus, where many believe Jesus was nailed to the cross, where he breathed his last breath. Some even wait for hours and hours to enter the tomb. When the pandemic hit last year, the church closed its doors for two months to everyone except for a few clergy, and it was the first time it had shut down since 1349. 1349. The Franciscan monks, they, they navigated the church grounds in a, a similar ma- manner to the way that they walked the city. Crowds moved. They prayed. I followed. I listened. I tried to take it all in. When we got to the entrance of the tomb, they stopped and they sang a few songs. We Then, two or three at a time, they, they entered the tomb, inviting us to file in after them and to step inside just for a brief moment. I, I felt bad for stepping in front of those who had been waiting for hours on end, but everyone in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, they, they all hit pause when the monks arrived. And so I just followed them in. I stepped inside with the dad and his son. The son couldn't have been older than twelve years old, and it was clear that the son wasn't as interested as his dad wanted him to be. It was as if he wanted to manufacture this moment of holiness for for himself and for his his son, but it really, it wasn't happening. And I looked at the boy and smiled because i I kind of felt the same way. I'm not so sure what I expected, but it was cramped. It was crowded. It was hurried. Not exactly a recipe for a time of reflection and reverence. When Mary and Mary showed up at Jesus' tomb that Sunday, I think it's safe to say that they didn't quite find what they were expecting either. The stone rolled away, the earthquake, the angel of the Lord sitting on top of the stone. No, I can't say exactly what they expected, but it's safe to assume it wasn't quite that. They went to take care of the body of their friend, to mourn, to maybe even confirm what had just happened a few days earlier. But they found something else. They're invited to step into the tomb to see the place where his body once was. And what about that person who was sitting there on the top of the stone who invited them into the tomb? How did they know it was an angel of the Lord? While we see this moment usually as this, this holy moment, that this group of women, the, the first who witnessed the resurrection, I, I'm guessing that they were experiencing something else than a holy moment. That they were at least a little panicked and more than likely more than just a little. It wasn't what they expected and it had to catch them off guard. Now they run to share the good news with the others And I imagine along the way, as they ran, they talked about how they could possibly share this news without sounding absolutely crazy. As they hurry, probably running along the road, Jesus shows up next to them. He finds them and he says, he says, greetings. Or as another translation of this word puts it, rejoice. Rejoice. Don't be afraid. I found you. Go tell my brothers, I'm coming to find them too. Luke and John, in their Gospels, they tell the story of Jesus finding the disciples later. And John goes into a good amount of detail uh, with some of the conversations that were had after Jesus' resurrection. Whether it was meeting some of them on the road whether it was meeting with them behind closed locked doors or at breakfast on the beach, in each case, he opened their eyes, gave them new perspective about something that happened before the crucifixion. Now, typically when we talk about Easter, we rightfully focus on the story of the search for Jesus. But ultimately, there are two searches happening. Easter is also the pinnacle of of the bigger story of God searching for us, of God's faithfulness, of God's love. It's a story that begins in Genesis with creation and ends with the collision of the heaven, uh, the new heavens and the new earth coming together, the restoration of the new Jerusalem, where we're told we dwell with God and God dwells with us. Now there's a moment in the creation story in Genesis where God's ongoing search for humankind begins to take form. It's set in the majestic garden. Adam and Eve were exploring the world that had been created for them. All the sights, all the sounds, all the smells, the trees, the animals, the rivers, the sky, the sun, the moon, one another. I imagine everything being new for them. And and every day being an adventure that revealed just how much they were loved by God. The serpent came, they gave in, everything shifted, everything changed. Then in Genesis chapter 3, verses 8 and 9, we read this. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Where are you? It's one of the first interactions we see between God and and people in the Bible. God searching for the children that he created. Now, of course, God wasn't literally looking for them. He wasn't looking for a literal answer from Adam and Eve. It's, It's pretty safe to assume that the God who created everything knew exactly where they were. It wasn't like they could find a place in the garden that he didn't know about. God was addressing their state of mind, their state of being. They hid because they were distracted, because they realized what they had done, because they were ashamed. And God approaching them when they were in their most vulnerable state was terrifying. So they tucked themselves behind a plant, hoping to find an escape. Now, at one point or another, most of us as children experience what it's like to be separated from a parent. Maybe in a department store or at the park or at the beach. Like, like every kid, we get distracted by one of those, those cool circular clothing racks. And we decide, you know what, I wonder what's in the middle. I'm going to go and check it out. Or by a shiny new slide or by a bird flying by that for whatever reason looks different from the hundreds of other birds that we see that day. Then, after the distraction, we we look around and we realize that something's off. Something's changed. Mom or dad or grandma, they, they aren't there. And even if it's just for a moment, panic sets in. What most kids don't realize is the panic that they feel in that moment is amplified exponentially by the parent who's looking for their child. As God searches for them in the garden, God's faithfulness is on display. And it's revealed even further once they step out. Once they step out from their shame, approach God and, and have a conversation. Now there's definitely consequences, but God doesn't beat them up. God doesn't destroy them with their consequences. God grieves with them. God clothes them. And God sends them on their way with a new perspective and toward a, a new future Staying hidden in shame would have kept them from experiencing that, from experiencing God's love. And the same is true for us today. One of my favorite authors puts it this way. Shame has one goal and one goal alone, to keep you cemented in a dark past while it hides a beautiful future from you. So when John writes the passage that we all know about in his third chapter of, of his gospel, God so loved the world that he gave his only son, he includes in it a line that for whatever reason, sometimes uh, it gets kind of pushed aside or goes unnoticed. God did not send his son into the, into the world to condemn it, to shame it, but to save it. Now, I don't know what you're carrying this morning or what sort of expectation you may have brought this year into Easter, especially after a year like we've had. Maybe it's it's no expectation, just the same old, same old. Maybe you were hoping we'd be at one place in society by now and, and you're disappointed that we're not there yet. Maybe you're frustrated and God feels distant. Maybe you're ashamed for whatever reason. Now, I want to invite you at some point today or maybe later this week to take an honest inventory. Where are you? Is there anything that you might be trying to hide from yourself or hide from God? Anything that you're just afraid to admit or maybe afraid to say out loud? Take some time today, this week, and ask yourself that question. Write down your answer if you can. Maybe even find someone you trust to have that talk that you've been putting off. Where are you? While Mary and her friends are at the empty tomb talking with the angel of the Lord, the majority of the disciples are in hiding, probably in the same upper room that they gathered in days earlier. They're afraid, unsure of their future, probably a bit ashamed that they weren't by Jesus' side during his darkest hour. And Jesus finds them. It's the pinnacle of the story of God's love for humankind, of God's love for you and for me. And my prayer for us this week is regardless of where you sit, not knowing what you're going through or what might be on the horizon, is that you would know that God's search for you is never-ending. We see God's faithfulness revealed to Jesus' first followers as he finds them after the resurrection. But we see it in the creation narrative as God searches for the created ones he loved. And in a multitude of other stories in scripture in between those two places where God seeks out people and reminds them of who they are, of their identity, reminds them that they are loved. As we continue our journey together into whatever tomorrow holds, Friends, may we remember that God is faithful. Let's pray. Lord God, along with the author of the 136th Psalm, we give thanks knowing that your love endures forever. Through seasons of all kinds, through times of joy and times of sorrow, you constantly seek us out. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your faithfulness. Amen.